So, <coughs> good evening. I just wanted to mention before we begin the shir this evening, just some uh, Sfarim news. So, firstly, the Hanukkah Sefer is in print. That's uh, the Sefer Hanukkah Capturing the Light. That should be available in uh, uh, all uh, Sfarim stores. And a recent uh, development, <coughs> recent pu- uh, publication printing, is that the Sefer was translated into Russian. So this looks a lot like the original one, except it's illegible. But this is <coughs> the Russian translation. Uh, most of the copies are actually in Russia, but some of them are in uh, Eretz Yisrael. <coughs> if anyone <coughs> knows any uh, Russian speakers or uh, would themselves like to learn Russian and, and never knew how, so uh, please uh, be in touch with me via the website. I'll be happy to forward you the link. Um, and from there, <coughs> we begin our discussions with regards to Parshas Vayishlach. And of course, the beginning of the Parsha is Yaakov's uh, meeting, attempt at reconciliation with Asaph. And as we've mentioned in the past, there is a certain duality within Yaakov's messages. On the one hand, there is a, a tone of uh, conciliation, of appeasement, to try and uh, make, make the peace with Esau. <coughs> On the other hand, there is also an, an undertone or an accompanying tone of uh, being somewhat more forthright, right, and <clears throat> perhaps even uh, intimidating. In order to uh, get the message to Yos- to, to Asaph that he should not he should not not start up with Yaakov. It's a very interesting blend. On the one hand, there's an element of I'd like to make the peace. On the other hand, don't start with me, or there will be trouble. And. I think the simplest way of understanding how these two go together is that there are certain people that the only way to make the peace with them is if they know that if they start war, there will be trouble. It's a mistake to think that everyone is as peace-loving as you are, that if you only say that you want peace, that will lead to peace. For some people, they are of a mindset, for the Aesovs of this world, that if all you say is that you want peace, for them that is an invitation to, to overrun you because it means you're not prepared to, for, for war, and which means they can win. So in the interests of, of achieving peace, there needs to be the knowledge that should they take the other option, it will not work out well for them, and that will perhaps, even that is an optimistic vision uh, for the Asavs to, to lead them or encourage them to pursue the path of peace. What is an example of this duality? Well, (coughs) uh, in the second Pasuk of the Parsha, Yaakov famously says, Imlovangarti, Imlovangarti. And what does Imlovangarti mean? So Rashi picks up on the word Garti uh, for the very basic reason that Garti has a temporary connotation. Unlike nowadays, where we would say gar on any, an, an unlimited amount of time, but in, in Loshna Kodesh, <coughs> lagur always means temporary or transient or lightweight. And why would Yaakov say that? He was there for 20 years. That's not called garti. 
That's called Yashavti. I mean, 20 years is a good innings uh, anywhere. And that's why Rashi says, or, or presents two explanations. The first, says Rashi, is Garti. It was transient in the sense that I was always a lightweight personality. No one gave me respect there. No one gave me kavod. No one took me seriously. <clears throat> and the reason why Yaakov says this, why is that of interest to Esav? Because part of the brachas were, Heve gevir la'achecha. And no one really related to me like a gvir at all, not even Lavan, who's also kind of like my, my family, least of all Lavan. As if to say, so the brothers, seem, the, the brachas seemingly did not uh, come true with me or fulfilled with me. Please don't be angry at me. That's the conciliatory tone, the conciliatory element within Garti. The brachas didn't work out. No need to be upset. But as we know, there's a famous gematria for Garti. Garti is taryag. <coughs> and Yaakov is saying to Esav, I kept a taryag mitzvah. And now Esav is not worried about Yaakov's Yiddishkeit. I mean, that's the least of his worries these uh, last 20 years. But what Yaakov means to say is, if you start up with me, be aware, I have merits. I hope it won't come to that, but I'm prepared for that. That's the duality within Yaakov's message. And indeed, one, one can see these, these twin goals in the final phrase of Pasuk Vav, where Yaakov says, ladoni. I am sending lehagid to tell, As Mephorshim point out, <coughs> the word lehagid often has a a harsh connotation. Rashi tells us that in Parshas Yisro. Vesaged livne Yisrael. Dvarim koshim kigidim. So on the one hand, part of the message is lahagid laduni. There are tough messages here. There's a business side to, 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 this, um, to this hello. But also lim tzochein be'enecha. But I hope things will work out well. And thus the two go together. And with this introduction in place, let us take a look at the beginning of Pasuk Vav. And we're, again, we're looking for the two elements within each phrase, the conciliatory and the more confrontational, if need be. And what, what does Pasuk Vav say? Vayihili shor vachamor. I had an ox and a donkey, which we assume is the generic singular. In other words, oxen and donkeys. Although it does say it in the singular. Tzon, flock, ve'eved, v'shivcha. And how is this now a message either of peace? How does saying that I have oxen and donkey mean anything to Esau? In either direction. Well, once again, Rashi explains that the conciliatory aspect is that Yaakov says, remember the brachos were mital ha-shamayim umishmane ha-aretz, from the dew of the heavens, the fat of the land. Which means if the brachos had come true with me, I would have made it big in agriculture. That's the fat of the land. As it is, I didn't. I did well in livestock, but not in what the brachos were about. And therefore, that's a further nod in the direction of the brachas seemingly didn't come true with me. Maybe I didn't deserve that they should come true. And therefore, don't be angry. But what is the more confrontational side of shor v'chamor? I mean, how can that be a threat to anyone? Then these are not animals of war. 
the Meshachachma provides an entirely new vista into, the, into this phrase of Shor Vachamor. And he does so by raising a very simple question. Yaakov lists three types of uh, animals, three categories that he had. Shor, ox or oxen, chamor, donkeys, and so. There is a fourth category that Yaakov doesn't mention. Later on, when, when Yaakov sends the gifts to Esau and he gives him all sorts of animals, so he sends him oxen, donkeys, cattle, but, and flock, but he also sends him camels. They feature quite prominently on the list of gifts that Yaakov gives to Esau, and one can assume that they were a, a significant asset in that time. And therefore, they are number four on the list of four types of animals that are given to Esau. But curiously, they're missing from Yaakov's inventory as he describes himself to Esau, because he says, Vayihili shor v'chamor, and so. Where did the camels go? I mean, I wouldn't exactly call them the elephant in the room, but they, they are present and they're absent. What are we to make of this uh, omission of Gemalim, says Meshachachma. <coughs> we begin literally at the beginning. The Pasuk says in Kohelas, regarding the creation of man, Asher asa ha'elokim es ha'adam yasha. Initially, in his inception, in the initial creation, man was, was made yashar. The Pasuk goes on to say, Vehema bikshu chishvonos rabim, and then they ruined everything and, 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 and uh, started to make things very complicated. But, but in his, in, initially, man is yashar. What does it mean to be yashar? What it means, says Meshachachma, and in this matter, there, there are roots to his explanation in the Sefer Nefeshachayim, discusses at length in the, um, uh, in the beginning of Sefer Nefeshachayim, Yashar means an instinctive, an intuitive tendency towards good. That means that the essential draw and connection of man is towards good things. That's what, that's what it means to be Yashar. It's a term like Tzaddik and Yashar, and, and that's how man was initially. Now, to be sure, there were forces of evil in the world. No question about it. And moreover, those forces would be able to corrupt man. Not only is that a theory, that's what happened. It's history. But the forces of evil existed outside of man, as represented by the Nachash. The, the Nachash is an, is an extrinsic entity to man. Imagine if man never came into conversation with the Nachash, he would never have been swayed or drawn towards doing the wrong thing because of himself, he is yashar. It doesn't mean he can't be corrupted, but he would need to be corrupted from the outside. And that's actually what happened. But more than that, as a result of allowing himself to be corrupted from the outside, the tendency towards wrongdoing now enters man and becomes part of him on the inside. It is no longer correct to say, 
having allowed himself to be swayed from the outside, it's no longer correct to say that man intrinsically desires only that which is right. And if you leave him alone, he'll only do the right thing. That's not true anymore. It was true initially, but post-Ghet, it's much more complicated. And in fact, this is the meaning, according to Reb Chaim of the expression, das tovara. Eitz hadas tovara. We normally translate it as knowledge of good and evil, which is a fair translation. We then need to find out why knowing good and evil is to be avoided at all costs. One would think it's actually a good asset to know the difference between them. But according to Rabhaim Velozhin, <coughs> the word das comes from the, the expression of, of connection and of union. Whenever man and wife are connected, it's always called yadia, ha'adam yada es chava ishto. It's a, it's a well-known biblical expression. But the reason why is because das refers to a fusion of two things. Even as knowledge, das is a level where you absolutely connect with the idea and where you connect as one. So das tovara means that good and evil are now one. Because they coexist now as part of the uh, essential makeup of man. And that is really the, the depiction of the fall of man as a result of the Chet Eitz Hadas. And thus the matter stayed. There it rested. Until there began a recovery back to the road of reclaiming goodness as the essential nature of man. And who began this, this journey? Avram Avinu. <coughs> the Gemara says in Masech Shabbos, in Daf Kuf Mem Vav, it, it depicts it in, in, a, in, in this way, that when at the time of the sin of the Eitz Hadas, the snake injected venom into mankind, and it persisted until Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Um, and that venom is, a, is a, an expression of the, the co-tendency, intrinsic tendency, towards evil. That's the poison of the snake. But the others began the road back to reclaim the essential drive towards good. It begins with Avram. And moreover, not only is it a three-stage process in terms of taking time, there are refinements going on. <clears throat> As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is what's behind the fact that Avram, not all of Avram's children continue as the legacy of Avram. You have Yishmael, who in a sense draws away some of the impurity or the, the zuama um, from, from within Avram, leaving Yitzchak. But even with Yitzchak, there's more to be drawn away. And that takes the further se- selection or refinement process of having Yaakov and Esav. But once Yishmael draws off what he draws off, and once Esav draws off what he draws off, and you have the, a threefold refining process, you're left with Yaakov. And f- from that point on, all of Yaakov's children are in. They're all part of the program uh, irrevocably. And, and, and no one is to be excluded anymore. And what does that mean in terms of Jewish nature? The nature of Yisrael has been reclaimed that essentially it tends towards good. It's not a full recovery, I mean, uh, as experience shows, because the Yetzirah still exists within the person, but it's no longer the person. 
it, it exists there uh, hovering around the core of the person and it can make its effect known. You don't need to hear a voice from the outside, but the voice you hear from the inside is no longer you. Your actual voice is always to do the right thing. As, as the Gemara says, Ritzoneinu, Lasos Ritzonecha, the inner will of the Jew is to do, the, is to do Hashem's will. That is the product of the threefold recovery of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And it's an amazing way to look at Chumash Bereshis, really, certainly the first uh, two-thirds of it. And this is a concept that has halachic ramifications. Uh, It sounds like a very uh, lofty and perhaps esoteric idea, and of course it can be understood on many levels. But it impacts in the halachic realm. And this is described by no less a personality than the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah. Because there are certain situations where a person ha- is, is obligated to act in a certain way, to do a mitzvah or whatever it is, to bring a korban, or as the Gemara describes, sometimes if he's not acting correctly, he needs to divorce his wife. And these are things that can only be done if the person wants to do it. It has to be done meiratzom, with his full will. Sometimes, however, he's not cooperating. So then what do you do? It needs to be lirtsono. So the Gemara in Kiddushin, Dafnun, has an amazing solution. Kofinoso, achiyomarotsani. Force him until he says he does one. And problem solved. Now, <coughs> as we can appreciate, that needs some understanding. After all, you, you, you start beating him, although one is cautioned not to try this at home, but you start beating him, and he says he wants. Uh, what do you think he says he wants? What, what do you think he wants? I mean, if he could only finish the sentence, he'd probably say, I want you to stop beating me. But we say, oh, he said he wants. And the Rambam discusses this in Hilchus Gerushin and says, because the truth is he really does want to do the right thing. But Nebuch, his Yitzhahara, is confusing him, it's confounding him, it's misleading him. So all of that coercion is really just to keep his Yitzhahara at bay and to subdue it. So that when he finally says the words, Rotsani, it really is an expression of what he wants. Those are Rambam's words in the Mishnah Torah with major halachic ramifications. How does this come back to the question of Shor v'chamor? As, in, as profound a, a description of the Ovos as it is, how does it relate to our Parsha? We know that uh, for an animal <coughs> to be kosher, there are two what we call kosher simonim, kosher signs. It's to ch- uh, chew the cud, have split hooves. If it only has one of those signs, that's not good enough, as we know. Okay. If there's one thing that we learned from the Torah, it's that there's no such thing as a half kosher lunch. It's got to have two kosher simonim or it's trick. However, the, the, gemar, the, the Chumash does mention and does list a number of animals that do have one kosher simon in order to say that they are all not kosher because one is not enough. It's two or nothing. <clears throat> one of those animals is the camel. And the truth is, <coughs> the, as the Medrash explains, the camel is a motif for a certain period in time. Because it's interesting that in Rivka's time, 
there's camels all over the place. There's more camels in Parshas Chayisar than the rest of the Torah put together. And Eliezer takes the camels and to water the camels and then they bring them and then they feed them and then Rivka comes back on the camel. And it's, it, it really is mentioned a lot. And, and the Medrash notes this. And the Medrash says the reason why camels feature so prominently in the story of Rivka is because Rivka herself was like a camel. In what sense? Because in the same way that a camel is a mixture, again, halakhically it's not kosher, but it's a mixture of a kosher sign and a not kosher sign. It chews the cut, but it doesn't have split hooves. So it combines kosherness and not kosherness thematically. Well, so did Rivka. Because Rivka had within her Yaakov and Esau. So in other words, what, what, what a camel is to kosherness, Rivka was in terms of the the different types of children that she had within her. And that's why the camels are mentioned so much, feature so prominently in Parshish Chayasara. Concluding or bringing the discussion now full circle, says Meshachachma, <coughs> so now we understand what Yaakov means when he says to Esav, Vayihili Shor Vachamor. And he does not mention camels. That was our opening question. Because camels represent the fact that there's still a mixture inside. But the, the, the refinement and the segregation and separation of good and evil as now as two distinct entities, no longer a fused entity, but two distinct entities, it reached its culmination in the life of Yaakov and through the personality of Yaakov. And therefore Yaakov, this is the, the, the Tariag mitzvahs confrontational side of saying what Yaakov is saying is in the same way that Garti means I've been keeping all the mitzvahs means there's no more camels inside of our camp conceptually there's only the shor meaning what the shor represents completely kosher what the chamor represents completely not kosher it's not that we don't have chamor but it's no longer a hybrid it's no longer a, a, a composite entity. They are two distinct things because the nature of the shore is the essence and the other exists as an extrinsic uh, entity. And this is uh, the very fascinating way that the Meshachachma explains, such, beginning with such a simple question, how easy it is to read the Pasuk, Shorva, Chamor, and so on, and never to ask, where did the camels go? Because we're going to see them in Shani. But the Meshachachma does, and not only... The does he ask? Does he know to ask the question? But he, he pre- prevents us with such a presents us with such a profound understanding of what Shor Bachamor represents. Okay, so having spoken quite a bit about Yaakov's opening message, what does he hear back from Esav? The Malachim come back. Pasuk Zayin Vayashuvu Hamalachim Al Yaakov Lemor. They return to Yaakov and say, Bono Esav. We came to Esav. He's coming with 400 men. And, uh, and Rashi understands, as to many others, that means it means war. And how does Yaakov react? Pasuk Ches. Yaakov Ma'od Well, Yaakov is seemingly has a double reaction both of them negative. He's afraid, Vayira, Vayetzer, and he is uh, distressed.
<coughs> Why is he afraid? Because Asaph is coming with 400 men. And here, there are some basic questions to ask about Yaakov's reaction, his reaction of fear. We have to ask them carefully, because we're talking about Yaakov, but we have to ask them, because we need to learn from them. And the most basic question is, last we heard, it doesn't seem appropriate that a person should be afraid uh, of life situations. After all, there is a concept of, of uh, bitochon. Bitochon means that a person relies on Hashem, that uh, the best outcome will happen. So bitochon, uh, and in fact, the word bitochon means reliance, and reliance is the opposite of fear. Reliance, that security, is the opposite of insecurity, which is the whole side of anxiety and fear and so on. And, and therefore, as we need to ask the question, <clears throat> where, does the, where does the concept of bitochon, where did it go that Yaakov is uh, afraid? And on the contrary, it's a question that we specifically ask about Yaakov. We don't ask about, about ourselves because... If, if we're honest, we're not necessarily on, on the level of Bitochon, maybe that we should be, but we assume that Yaakov is. So specifically about Yaakov, we ask, I mean, where will one find Bitochon if not with the others? But, it's, but it seems not to be there, because he's afraid. And the question is further accentuated, because not only should Yaakov have Bitochon, Yaakov has a Havtochon. He has a, a, a specific and explicit promise from Hashem that Hashem will protect him. <clears throat> so in other words, when we talk about the general concept of bitachon, that is in the absence of any actual promise, but just one is as of themselves meant to rely on Hashem without having received any assurance uh, to, uh, of any sort. But certainly if one has, and Hashem explicitly told Yaakov, I will be with you and protect you. How then is there room for fear? And we should know further. It's very interesting that we normally, when we, when we discuss Hashem's promise and then Yaakov's fear, we go back to the beginning of Vayetze, where Yaakov has this dream and Hashem says, I'll be with you and I'll protect you. There is a much more recent promise. And there is literally at the end of Vayetze, just before Yaakov comes back, Hashem appears to him again and says, I will go, home, go back home and I will protect you. So one might have said, listen, a lot can happen in 20 years. So from the beginning of Vayetze, maybe he got a promise, but who knows if it's still valid or hasn't expired or, or other things have changed. But to have received Erev, his journey home, to receive the promise. I mean, it couldn't be more, it couldn't be more explicit. And finally, what are we to make of the double expression Vayira Yaakov, Vayira Yaakov, Vayetzolo, he's afraid, he's distressed. What's the difference between uh, fear and distress? Again, they're both negative, but why does the Pasuk mention both of them? And all of these questions, and I think this is a classic example where the, the, the discussion is as worth it for the questions that are raised as it is for the answer that is given. In this instance, the one who discusses the matter <coughs> is... Rav Chanuch Erentroy. I say Rav Chanuch Erentroy because he was the Rav of Munich, the grandfather of, of Dain Erentroy, that, uh, that's how that we all knew. <coughs> so Rav Chanuch Erentroy, his droshes are collected in a, in a sefer called Komes, Kometz Hamincha. And he really raises a basic question that the Medrash discusses. 
and Rishonim discuss? Again, a difficult question. Namely, was Yaakov right to initiate contact with Esav? Esav is heading his way. Yaakov, uh, possibly never the twain shall meet. And that, that is probably the most basic question of the beginning of Vayishlach. Was it correct? Was it advisable for Yaakov to make contact with Esav and say, I, I'm back, I want to make the peace? Maybe it was unavoidable. And therefore it has to be done. And it has to be done soon and in the right way. Maybe. Or one could say, no, maybe <coughs> leave him alone. Let sleeping dogs lie. And just stay out of each other's way. And there's no need to, to, to start up. And there is, there are both opinions exist, but the Medrash does voice the opinion that Yaakov did not need to, to reinitiate contact with, with Esav. And in fact, it quotes a pasuk in Mishle, which says, kelev. It's like someone who agitates the ears of a dog. Someone who, uh, someone who, someone who gets involved in a situation that that they don't really need to get involved in, they're asking for trouble. Just like if, you, if a dog is going its way and you start to, to, uh, a, a, to agitate it, so, you, so you're asking for trouble. And the Medrash adduces this pasuk with regards to Yaakov and Esav. And Esav is a dog, leave him alone. <coughs> and that's a very interesting shiner. Says Rav Aaron Troy, if indeed it's true, that either that Yaakov should not have gotten in contact with Esau, or at least it's not clear that he should have. So that now recasts everything that, that Yaakov did and how he should feel when he hears that Esau is coming for war. Why? Because there is a basic principle, and that is bitochem, which is, which is a very, very hallowed and central concept, reliance on Hashem. And moreover, reliance on an explicit promise. They will f- f- fare by a person unless the person himself puts himself in danger. In other words, if Hashem says, I will guard you wherever you go, that means I will guard you from dangers that would otherwise come upon you. But if you actively Put yourself in danger. If you take a course that exposes yourself to danger, so that so the promise doesn't cover such a thing like that, because it's not something that a person should do. And this now says Kometz Hamincha kind of very carefully. But initially, Yaakov makes the peace. It's quite clear to him that that's what he should do. But when he hears that Esav is coming, he's afraid, and he's right to be afraid. He's right to be afraid because it's possible that he put himself in the situation, which, which if he hadn't, it, it wouldn't have occurred. And maybe, therefore, there's no room for bitachon. And moreover, maybe there's no room even for the assurance that Hashem gave him. Even recently. Because that doesn't cover him endangering himself. <coughs> and this, says the, the Rav Aaron Troy, is the, du- is the double response of Vayira Yaakov Ma'od Vayetzelo. He was afraid. And he was distressed. He, he was afraid and he was upset. How much room is there for upset if, you, if you're afraid? What, what are you upset about? Says, says Averon Troy, in, in terms of our discussion, he's afraid of Esau because maybe his Dachdokha won't cover. And he's upset that he initiated contact with him. Thinking back, says Yaakov, I should have left him alone. 
And that's really the two-tiered uh, re reaction of fear for Asaf and, and by Yates alone. Now thinking back, I, maybe I, should, I, sh I shouldn't have sent, sent a message to him. Having said that, of course, uh, the die is cast and things proceed. It's already, uh, there's no turning back and the, the Parsha comes to its conclusion. But all of this is based on either the, the approach or the possibility that Yaakov should not actually have made contact with Esau. If one takes the approach that it was inevitable and he needed to do it, then all of Rabbi Troy's questions will return. If it's something you have to do, you're meant to do it, so why are you afraid? And what's by year of you, you got your haftocha, etc. and so forth. And uh, the resolution of that we shall uh, have to leave for another time. But that the questions themselves are very, very um, basic and compelling, uh, certainly demand our attention. Let's move from here later into the Parsha to Perik Lamed Hay, uh, Pasuk Tes. Of course, much has happened. Uh, there's there's a, a lot that we are not discussing, but uh, Jacob is back, <coughs> and 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 there are developments that, that are, are to be happening in these psukim. Pasuk test. Perik lamed hei pasuk test. Vayera Elokim el Yaakov od bevo mi padanaram Hashem appears to Yaakov, vayivar Hashem and blesses him. And says, Vayomalo Elohim, Shimcha Yaakov. Your name is Yaakov, but Lo Yikare od Shimcha od Yaakov, Ki im Yisrael. But your name will no longer or not always be Yaakov, it will be Yisrael. Vayikra Shemo Yisrael. Although the, the Malach initially has also said something similar in his wrestling with the Malach, but obviously one prefers to hear it from Hashem and not from uh, Esau's angel, with all due respect. Um, so here is where Hashem himself changes Yaakov's name to Yisrael. And then he says, let's see how these two things go together. Pasuk Yud, his name is changed to Yisrael. Pasuk Yud Aleph, a bracha for children. Vayomer lo Elohim, anikel shakai, perei uruvei. Perei uruvei, be fruitful and multiply. Goy ukal goyim yiyeh mimecha. And let's try and translate those words carefully. Goy ukahal goyim. A nation, an assembly of nations will come from you. What does that mean? Well, Rashi gives a very unexpected explanation of the word kehal goyim. Goy ukahal goyim. Says Rashi, in the second explanation, you know what it means that, go that goyim will, will come from you? It's like the English word goyim. In the future, your, some of your descendants, they will offer korbonos, even though, if there's a base, I make their standing, you can't offer korbon on a bomber, which is a private altar, but they will. Like Goyim. It's very interesting. We're ready for, for Kal Goyim in the Jewish sense. Jewish Goyim, meaning nations in, 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 in the most elevated sense. And, and Rashi says, no, it means that they'll, uh, they'll act like Goyim. They'll, they'll offer Karbonos where, where one's not allowed to. Like when? Bimei Eliyahu, in the days of Eliyahu. What's that a reference to? 
the famous showdown on Mount Carmel between Elio and the prophets of, of the Baal, we don't normally focus on the halachic aspects, but Elio brought his korban, they brought their korban. For him to bring a korban there was, was strictly speaking, osur, because the Beis HaMikdash was in existence. So any altar outside the Beis HaMikdash is a bomber. But of course, Eliyahu did it. It's called the Haraz Shah. He's a Navi. A Navi can suspend a prohibition on a temporary level using the power of Navua. And that's what Eliyahu did. And there you go, says Rashi. That's Goy Ukahal Goyim. In the future, some of your descendants will offer Korbanos on, outside the base of Migdash, like, like the Goyim do. And we are left confounded by this Rashi. What does this have to do with anything? Yaakov is in the middle of, of, of being given a bracha that he will have many descendants. You've got to tell him now that, that at, at certain time, you know, Elio, he'll bring kabanos like this, and Zabisamigdash, and you can't really bring an Obama, but he will. I mean, that's, that seems to be not a relevant piece of history in terms of what's happening now. It's absolutely apropos of nothing. And while we're on the topic, if indeed we're looking for examples of people who, who offered korbanos on bomos, not that we go searching for, for such examples, but there were cases before Eliyahu, Gidom, Gidom brought a korban on a bama. Also, Harashah, so did Manoach, the father of Shimshon. So why do we, go, why do we make a beeline for, for Eliyahu? What's it all about? If ever a Rashi said Darshani, it's this Rashi of uh, Goyu Kahal Goyu. <coughs> and an absolutely <coughs> stunning explanation of this Rashi is to be found in the writings of one of the great Gaonim of, of recent times, Rup Shlomo Fisher. Zatzal passed away just a few weeks ago. He was, I think it's, it's safe to say, in a league of his own. One of the greats of Yerushalayim. And he explains as follows. If you want to understand the contents of Pasuk Yud Aleph, which we've been talking about, pray Revei, Goyu Kalgoyim, go back to Pasuk Yud, where Yaakov's name is changed to Yisrael. What is the connotation of this new name, Yisrael? What does it entail and what does it denote? Well, we have our own experience in this. We may have heard Yisrael is a relatively higher level spiritually, Yaakov relatively lower. Something else is happening. When Hashem says uh, to, to Yaakov in the end of Pasigyot Aleph, Goy ukahal goyim, that's almost like a, it's almost, it's like a conundrum. You, it will be a nation and an assembly of nations. Well, well which is it? If you look in Unculus, Unculus translates Am, Goy is Am, and Kahal Goyim, an assembly of Goyim, Vechinshas Shivtin, an assembly of Shvatim. That's very interesting. Yaakov is given a promise about two things. Number one, from you will come a Goy, meaning a nation. But there's more, it's more specific than that. It will be an assembly of Shavatim. And, and that happens just after he's called Yisrael. 
because that's part of what Yisrael means. Yisrael means the Jewish people made up of all of its Shvatim. So when Yaakov is given this new name, he's given this new bracha, because Hashem says, as Yisrael, this is what will come from you. And it's very interesting to follow this idea through, because the connotation now of the name Yisrael means the Jewish people, as promised to Yaakov, made up of all the Shvatim. Where do we see this in action? At the time of the Cheta Egel. So Hashem says to Moshe, I will destroy the Jewish people and I will create a new nation from you. These are, that, that's the Pasuk in Pasha's Kisisa. And, and Moshe rails against this and he, he doesn't accept it. And the way the Medrash expresses it, because Hashem says, I, I promised the Avos that a great nation would come from them. But it will, through you. So everything is in place. To which Moshe responds, and of course, parenthetically, that means Moshe was meant to respond. Amar Moshe. Im Cain to Kayem Bris Avos. Well, if you make a great nation out of me, you fulfilled the Bris of the Avos, because Avos have, have, will have the great nation from them. But what about the bris with the shvatim? That's interesting. What's Moshe saying? I, I'm from Levi. I'm one of the tribes. If the Jewish people are destroyed and everything comes from me, there are no more 12 tribes because I'm only one of them. So the, so the promise to the Avos, they can have descendants through me, but there's a bris of shvatim. And where do we see that? Every single time in the Chumash that the Overs are mentioned by name, it's always Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Understandably so. With one exception. When Moshe prays, in Parshas Kisisa, Vayichal Moshe, Hashem says, I'll destroy them. And Moshe says, no. What does he say? Zachor, la'avraham, li'itzchak, u'li'yisrael avadecha. Why does Moshe refer to Yaakov there as Yisrael? Because it's of the essence in terms of what he's praying about. Because Hashem says, I'll make a new nation from you. And but Moshe says, that may be good for Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, but it's not good for Avram, Yitzhak, and Yisrael. Because Yisrael requires all the 12 Shvatim. With this in mind, we proceed to Eliyahu Behar HaKarmel. The story, in brief, we know. It's the Haftarah for Parshas Kisisa, although it's not always read. It's often one of the Arba Parshios. But they have their, their, their confrontation. They do whatever they try and do to get the fire to come down from them. Nothing doing. And then Eliezer. And what does, what does he make his Mizbeach of? The Pasuk says he took 12 stones. His Mizbeach was made of 12 stones. In the words of the Pasuk, it's in Melachim Aleph. Perik Yud Ches, Pasuk Lamed Aleph. Vayikach Eliyahu, Shteim Esrei Avanim. He took 12 stones, says the Pasuk, Kemispar Shivtei Bnei Yaakov, which is the number of the tribes of the sons of Yaakov. And the Pasuk continues, Asher Hayad Devar Hashem Elav Leimor, Yisrael Yeshemecha. To whom Hashem's word was conveyed to him, your name will be Yisrael. That is a lot of history compacted into this episode. I mean, we know that Yaakov's name was changed to Yisrael. 
Why is that relevant to this particular situation? The Pasuk should have said, had it said he took 12 stones, maybe I could have even guessed that it's because of the Shvatim. But if you want to tell me that it's Kiminyan Shivtei Yisrael, now I know it. I need the continuation that Hashem appeared to Yaakov and said, your name will be Yisrael. That's, that's, what is that apropos of? But the point is, it's because Yaakov's name was changed to Yisrael. That's why Elio has this confrontation on Har Carmel. How so? By that stage, the Jewish people had split into two. In the south, you have Malchus Yehuda, who are, relatively speaking, doing okay, Yiddishkeit-wise. In the north, not so good. Malchus Yisrael. And Eliyahu and Elisha, it's very interesting, the, the, the Nevi'im that we focus on at that time in history, they're in the north. They're Nevi'im for Yisrael. We don't, I don't know if we know who the, the Nevi'im uh, concurrently were at that time in the south for, for Malchus Yehuda. Either way, every, everything is going, is going to pieces in the north. People of Odazara is all over the place, prophets of Baal, and, and the prophets of Hashem have to be hidden in a cave. So you could do one of two things. You could cut your losses and say, well, this isn't working, so I'll just retreat southwards. And the Jewish people will continue through and, and cast away those, t- those other tribes in the north. Eliyahu doesn't do that. But why not? Because if you push away those tribes in the north, then whatever you continue with is less than the tribes that, that are the name Yisrael. And that's why the Pasuk emphasizes that Eliyahu, when he's doing this, he's trying to bring them back. Some of them are beyond salvage, but, the, but for, to bring the people back. Why has he put himself out for this? Because look at the number of stones that he took. Twelve. Why? Because that's the number of Shivta Yisrael. As it was... When it was told to Yaakov, when Hashem said, your name will be Yisrael. Why is that mentioned here? Because that's, that's the promise that your descendants will be made up of these 12 tribes. And it's very interesting that as, as Eliyahu begins to offer his korban, which was famously Baalos HaMincha, right? At Mincha time, that's what makes Mincha time like a very special <coughs> time. So when his, what is his prayer? In Pasuk Lamed Vav. Vayi balos ha-mincha. Right? As, as mincha time, Vayigash Eliyahu Hanavi Vayomar. Hashem Elokei Avraham Yitzchak V'Yisrael. Once again, his introduction, non-typically, it's not Elokei Avraham Yitzchak V'Yaakov, it's Elokei Avraham Yitzchak V'Yisrael, because that's what he's fighting for. How important is it to Eliyahu? That, that as far as possible, all the Shvatim, all the 12 tribes of Yisrael remain intact. It's important enough that he invokes a Horas Shah to bring a Korban outside the base Hamikdash, which un- under other circumstances or general circumstances is forbidden. But he's a Navi, <clears throat> and therefore he can override it temporarily. But it's a big move. It is a big move, but it's worth it, says Eliel. To keep Yisrael intact, it's worth a harass shot. Says Rosh Fisher, so now, 
go back to, to Rashi. Hashem says to Yaakov, I'm changing your name to Yisrael. And I'm also telling you that Goy Ukehal Goyim will come from you. And in one of Rashi's explanations means, you should know, in the future, some of your descendants will bring korbanos like Goyim. I mean, that's Nachas. With that, you need to tell me now. How is it relevant to the, to, 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 to the earlier Pasuk? Says the Shlomo Fisher, we now understand it is absolutely relevant. Because Pasuk Yud says, your name is Yisrael. And that means all the Shvatim. And you should know further. In the future, just see how far your descendants will go in order to protect the definition of what Yisrael means. Elio Hanavi will invoke a Harasha. He'll bring Korbanos like a Goy. Through Harasha. In order to, to, to keep to keep all of those uh, tribes within the fold. That's how far he will extend himself in order to protect the name that I'm giving you now. That's the Pshat and the Rashi. And what emerges from this <coughs> is very interesting. Because it turns out that there is now a, a special historical connection between Yaakov and Eliyahu. Um, because we see um, in, in history, Elio, how far he'll go in order to protect the promise that was given to Yaakov about his descendants. All the Shvatim are in. <clears throat> and this will give us a, a deeper insight into a Rashi in Parshas Bichukosai. One of the Psukim that we say in Slichos, Hashem says, V'zacharties brisi Yaakov, Vafres brisi Yitzchak, Vafres brisi Avram Eskor. Okay, what's noteworthy about that Pasuk? Well, the others are mentioned in reverse order. Okay. That's a discussion, point of discussion. <coughs> but there's another point. If you look in the Pasuk there, it says the word Yaakov is written male with a vav. V'zacharti esprisi Yaakov. Yaakov is generally written yud, ayin, kuf, base. That's Yaakov. But here it's written with a vav. Yud, ayin, vav, uh, uh, vet, Sorry, kuf vav base, right? There's, there's a vav there. And in fact, says Rashi, quoting the Medrash, this happens five times throughout Tanakh. That Yaakov's name is written Mole. Okay. Further, says Rashi, you should know, there are five times when Eliyahu's name is written without a vav. Eliyahu. And the two fives connect with each other because they represent five situations or five instances where Yaakov, he took a vav. He took, the, he took a letter from Eliyahu's name as a pledge, as security. You're meant to be the harboring of the, of the geula. You'll get your vavs back when you do. But in the meanwhile, I'm Yaakov with extra vavs, five extra vavs, and you're Eliyahu, missing five vavs. Says the Maharal in a classic comment, Vosep is five. I mean to say, seemingly, once is enough. It's the same person. Why does this happen five times? We're not familiar that the number five has any significance as a pattern. Maybe three is a chazaka or ten, right? But where does five come from? Says Maharal, most unusual comment. When you secure a promise from someone, what do you do? Shake their hand. Tkiyas kaf. Each vav is a finger. 
By taking five vavs from Eliyahu, Yaakov is extracting a handshake from him. That's a pledge. Shake on it. It's a cross-Tanakh handshake. And as one of my Talmidim <coughs> pointed out a number of years ago, it's very interesting that of the, of the occasions where uh, Yaakov's name is mentioned Malay, one of them is, is in the Chumash. Four of them are in the Nevi'im. It's an interesting grouping. But isn't that what a hand is like? That you have of the five fingers, one is really by itself, and the other four are together. But why is it that of all of the Ovos, it's Yaakov that takes, uh, that takes a letter from Eliyahu as a pledge? Is Yaakov the only one of the Ovos that's interested in the, in the Geula for his, for his children? Obviously not. But the point is that the connection between Yaakov and Eliyahu is, Yaakov says, I want you to be a harbinger for Geula in a way that was promised to me. None of the others were promised that, that, that their descendants will be Yisrael. Yaakov is called Yisrael, and Yisrael means 12 Shvatim, but that's your specialty, Eliyahu. So be sure that when you, when, when you uh, come to announce the Geula, it's the Geula, which is uh, something that, that I'll be happy with also. You put yourself out to protect the 12 tribes, the integrity of the 12 tribes at the time. Be sure to bring them back. Then everyone will be happy. Not just Avram and Yitzhak, but also Yaakov. And it's especially interesting that Eliyahu is referred to as Malach Habris. The Pasuk calls him that in Malachi. Eliyahu Malach Habris. Now, now, what's the bris? He's the angel of the covenant. Which covenant? So we invoke this Pasuk at a bris, like at a bris mila. And Eliyahu's there. And therefore the, the, the notion is that he's called Malach Habris because he's a Malach that's present at a bris. But in context... It's It's about the Geula. So if it's about the Geula, so why is he called Malach Habris? Because he has a bris with Yaakov. It's brisi Yaakov. So he's Malach Habris to keep that covenant. And all of this comes from, uh, from that Rashi in his explanation of Goy Ukahal Goyim. This is the, the uh, discussion of Rupshlamar Fisher, which is such a, uh, an incredible, it's a, it's a Rashi that if we looked at it, we wouldn't look twice. And the Goy Ukahal Goyim, they've been Korbanas like this and like this, all of a sudden to open the, uh, to open the, whole, the whole discussion of, of ultimately what it means to, to be called Yisrael. Well, we too, as B'nai Yaakov, as B'nai Yisrael, we're waiting for, for Elio to come and, and, and announce. Uh, we're waiting uh, less patiently than uh, perhaps we, we, we were until uh, recently. But the Mitzah it should come and we should hear announced far and wide about the Geula. We should all return. B'shalom v'shalva. B'yishua solom v'simchas olam al-roshenu b'meheira b'yamin. Amen.